And so Matt's going to be teaching with you this morning. And, and it's funny as this is one of the things here, I'll, I'll share an insecurity. It's always hard when they do a good job teaching. <laughs> it just is. But that's what we want. <laughs> that's why they teach is because we validate. We just totally love um, watching when Joe taught uh, last time. And, and when Matt teaches, I always leave going like, that, why didn't I say it that way? And hopefully everyone will think that was me when they think back on that and remember those good thoughts. But we do believe as a church we're better when people are using their gifts and succeeding, and it doesn't have to do with any one person. And that's why we do a teaching team. That's why different pe- you hear from different people. And I just, I just want to say this publicly for Matt. Like, I love having you a part of that, and we look forward to hearing from you every time. So Thanks, I'm man. getting out of here, man. Yeah! Thanks, Ryan. Love you, bro. Uh, no, it's really fun to be a part of the teaching team. It's fun to like, like oh, I had an insight and someone listened to it. That's great. And uh, so, Ryan, thank you for what you're doing and your leadership and getting that going. I love it. I love being a part of it. Yeah, I love my job here. I, uh, if you guys don't know, I lead the young adults and the young marrieds ministry. And what, what? Yeah. <laughs> and. Uh, get to do some other fun, creative stuff, but today I do get to teach, which is fun and really challenging. It's uh, really challenging, especially as I was preparing this past week, and I was like, okay, God, I know that you want to say something specific to us. I know that you have, you have a message for us today, and I think God always, always starts out by putting that message in. Whoever's speaking put, plants that in their heart, and honestly, the message this week to me was extremely convicting. And I really did have those thoughts, like, how, and how is it possible, how is it that I can get up in front and share this when I struggle with so much of what we're going to be talking about today? I struggle with all of it. So I stand up here today not as, sit, stand, uh, not as someone who has mastered any of this, but someone who's a fellow journeyer with you. And uh, I'm trying to figure out what this looks like in my own life as well. So I'm just going to kind of preach to myself, and you can just listen in. <laughs> I guess. Uh, But let me pray as we get started here. God, I thank you uh, for your word, Lord. And I pray that this morning you would help us to see what your word is teaching. God, I pray that we would would hear it. I pray that we would be submissive to it. I pray we would obey it. But God, I pray as we leave today that we would walk away feeling lighter, feeling freer because of who you are and what you have done. So Lord, I look forward to what what it is that you're going to do in our time together today. pray that you would help us to trust you. I pray this in your name. Amen. So I don't know about you guys, but I, I have, there's several things I hate. And one of the things I hate is being interrupted. Whoa. <laughs> no, no, no. Hear me out. I, I, I'm one of those guys, like when I, I'm ADHD. So if I get focused, like that's a good moment when I'm focused. And as when I'm in the zone and I'm focused and I'm on, I have a mission and stuff, then that phone call comes, the knock at the door comes, the text message comes. Come on. I mean, it's like, ah, oh, it throws me off my game. Okay. Or how about those times where you're on a mission? You just got, you have a goal. You're like, I'm going, I'm going to go to Target. I'm going to walk in. I'm going to get the paper towels. I'm going to get out. I'll pay for them first. And then I'm going to get out. <laughs> and you, you go in, you just, boom, you're just like on mission. You grab the paper towels, you're like, those are way too expensive, so you get the cheap ones. You're walking out with the paper towels, and then it happens. You see that person coming down the aisle. You know, not any person, it's the, 
the person that one of my friends calls a time bandit. <laughs> so it's the person who loves to talk, you know, and you know them, they're, they're coming towards you and they don't see you yet. Just put the paper towels up in front of my head. <laughs> like, okay, okay. I like, well, I just jump into automatic hide-and-go-seek mode. I'm just like diving around looking for an air vent to crawl into. I'm like, I gotta stay focused. This person's gonna talk and talk and talk and talk. <sighs> and uh, I've even gone into the women's makeup aisle before just to, just to strategically avoid the conversation. Okay. <laughs> so, anyways, you love them. You love the person, but you, you, you ain't got time for that. You gotta, you gotta get things done. So I don't know, maybe you guys don't do that. Maybe it's just me, but that's just one example to me of a dynamic that exists in all of our lives. It's a dynamic that happens when we're so fixated on ourselves, what we need to do, what our plans are. And we don't want anybody else's plans, anybody else's lives, or even their needs to intrude on ours. This dynamic plays itself out in everyday moments, like at Target, but it also is a dynamic that plays itself out through the course of our lives. You see, we are all giving our time, we're all giving our energy, passion, and our resources to something. That's true for everybody here. All of us have many things that we're pursuing, that we're trying to achieve. And while there might not be anything inherently wrong with with uh, the things that we're pursuing and all that stuff, it's so easy to make our goals more important than God's purposes. And the more we focus on ourselves, the easier it becomes to lose sight of what God has done, but also what God is doing around us. And so what we're going to look at today as we get going here, it's not a new thing. This isn't a new dynamic. You know, as long as humanity has been around, I feel like we've all as long as humanity's been around, we've all been morbidly introspective and self-focused, self-absorbed. And the scripture shows us we humans have a pretty good record at failing to put first things first. So if that's you, it's me. If it's you, you're in the right place today. Welcome. <laughs> today we're going to continue our series in Ezra. And in case you guys have missed the last several weeks of the series, I'm going to do what every great TV show does. I'm going to give you the previously on Ezra segment. So I'm just going to run through some, some of the backstory just to bring us up to speed. Okay, so here, here it is. The nation of Israel has been exiled. They've been removed from their land and they've been sent to Babylon. I googled it. Babylon is modern-day Iraq. Which, okay, so it's 550 some miles away from Jerusalem. So think about, if they're going from Jerusalem, they have to walk to Babylon when they're exiled. I mean, that's like a, that's a long way. So that's from here to roughly the Grand Canyon. It's a long hike. So they're exiled to Babylon. And the exile was largely due to God's people choosing to worship other gods first. Their failure was to put first things first. It's interesting, several years before the exile happened, Jeremiah, the prophet, he actually prophesied about the impending deportation. He, in fact, you guys, some of you may know the verse, Jeremiah 29:11. It's that verse that's on the Christian t-shirts and coffee mugs. It's a good one. I love it. He says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. But it's interesting, the verse right before that says, this is what the Lord says. 
when 70 years are completed for you in Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. So it's 70 years that this, this exile has been set for. And it's, the exile, it's not a good thing. Israel, they're no longer a nation. They're, they've lost everything. Everything that they know is gone. And so 50 years go by. And after being uh, taken away to Babylon, Babylon itself gets sacked. I like that word, sacked. Babylon gets sacked. And Persians take over under the leadership of King Cyrus. So that's where we began in the book of Ezra. It picks up at that point. And what we've been looking at each week is, is the book of Ezra documents the story and the process of God keeping his promise. Ezra tells us that God moved in the heart of King Cyrus and that Cyrus allows the Jews to return to their land and rebuild their temple. So they get started on the temple project. They get the foundation done. It's looking good, looking sweet, but then all of a sudden, OSHA shows up. I don't know if you know what OSHA is. Okay, not really. The, they run into some red tape. No, we learned last week, as Ryan was teaching, that opposition arose. And this opposition was, was so intense that it, it caused the project to be halted. And it came from their neighbors. So the, 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 the opposition arises, the plans get thwarted, the whole project comes to a standstill. So imagine that. So imagine the temple project, it's, it's going well, the foundation is laid, and then it stops, and then the screen fades to black. And that's where chapter 4 ended last week. So today, in the next episode, as the next episode begins, you imagine a black screen coming up and it says 20 years later. Okay, so it's been 20 years since, since it stopped. Wow. And you think about it for a while. You're like, okay, so it's 50 years. They started, they came back. And then it's been 20 years since that. Okay, hold on, hold on. Get your calculator out. You're like, 50 plus 20. 70 years. It's been 70 years. Oh my gosh. That's what uh, Jeremiah prophesied. So everything should be back to normal now, shouldn't it? So the screen fades in, and what, you, what we see causes us just to be speechless. We're like, what? What happened? We see the same temple foundation lying there, except now it's got weeds all grown up around it. It's in, the, it's in the same condition we last saw it, but now there's just all of that, the weeds and stuff, and imagine a tumbleweed rolls by for effect. And so today, I just want to start by, I want to investigate a little bit what happened. Uh, this brings us to chapter 5 of Ezra, where we're introduced to a few people, one of which is named Haggai. And I don't know why anyone says Haggai. Haggai. If you look at Haggai's name, it's, you know, sounded out. H-A-G-G-A-A-I. Haggai. Anyways, I digress. So if, uh, I'm going to read from Ezra chapter 5, if you have your Bibles or your... T- devices. Go ahead and make your way there. Ezra 5. I'm just going to read verses 1 and 2. We also have them on the screen for you. When the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. 
Okay, that's great and all, but that doesn't satisfy my curiosity. I want to know what's, what's happened over the last 20 years, and I specifically want to know what is it that Haggai said? What was, that, what was the message that he brought to help get people back into gear, rebuilding the temple? And so the good news is that there's, um, Haggai actually wrote his own account of things. And so there's actually a book in the Bible called Haggai, and that's where I want to spend our time today. Is it okay if we do Haggai in the midst of a series in Ezra? It's fine. So we're going to double-click on Haggai's name, open up his account. So if you guys can find Haggai, don't worry, I've got uh, directions. It's between Zephaniah and Zechariah. <laughs> just give you a second to find that. Okay, so this is a little lengthy, but I just want to read uh, Haggai 1, verses 1 through 11. This will kind of set the tone, set the context for us. And again, this will be on the screen as well. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai, uh, verse 2, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time, for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be, and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, and what the ground produces on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Woo! So let's break this down. What is going on here? And today I want to I look at what three things that Haggai was dealing with. The first thing, and this is the notes that are in there. I'm veering a little bit on the, the notes that came in your bulletin. This is going to be a little bit different, but it's all good. We'll be able to follow. Three things that Haggai was dealing with is, first of all, I want to talk about the surface problem. Secondly, the actual problem. And three, the solution. So first, the surface problem. The first thing that we see is that the people, they're, they're making excuses. You know, we heard him say, the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Isn't it funny how we tell God that his timing is off? How arrogant, how arrogant are we to tell God that he's wrong? But that's just a classic human excuse. And I feel we do it all the time. I, I know that I do. There's so quick story that Several months ago, uh, we discovered we needed brake pads on our car. And so I was like, well, let's, let's, we'll get brake pads. And uh, Paige is like, we need to get brake pads. I'm like, okay, we'll get brake pads. It's fine. Okay. Uh, so I'm like, hey, can you set a reminder on your phone? Because um, reminders are great. Do you guys have reminders on your phone? And the reminders keep coming. You just keep hitting snooze. Or later, later. So... Uh, so she sets a reminder on her phone. Thanks, Paige. 
for us to get brake pads. And I'm not kidding you, literally three months go by. Every day for three months, her phone vibrated. Time for brake pads. I was like, later, that's later. We'll, we'll take care of that later. Because I'm like, dude, the brakes still work. The time has not yet come. And I feel, so I'm just a classic example of just that procrastination, hitting the snooze button, making excuses. And, uh, but Haggai's audience was making the same excuse, but in their case, they were choosing to neglect the most important thing, God's glory. Because remember, the temple that they're, they're called to build, the temple was a symbol of God's presence with the people. It communicated to the watching world that God mattered. It was the relationship with God that made Israel so distinct from other nations. So now we've got this unfinished temple, this foundation that's laying there with weeds all over it, and people are walking by. And what do they conclude, most likely? They conclude that, well, the God of Israel just probably is, is pretty irrelevant and unimportant. You know, by ignoring its completion, the people, they elevated their own interests and desires above God. And so it's interesting to note, though, that the, the community that Haggai is speaking to, there's, it's not like they're saying, we don't want to build it. There was general consensus that, yeah, this project needs to be done. We need to finish it. But what was being challenged was that the idea that the time to do so had come. And so one of the questions I had was like, well, what, I wonder what they were thinking why didn't they believe it was time to rebuild? And scripture doesn't give us any specific reasons why they thought what they thought. But I think we can infer several possibilities. A couple practical and maybe a theological one. So maybe one of the reasons that they didn't think it was time was that there was still the threat of opposition. In fact, if you read the rest of Ezra 5, it's very clear that opposition is still there. Like, ah, oh, there's so much conflict. I just, it's so much easier. I just don't want to deal with that. When the conflict dies down, when, it, when that goes away, then we can get going again. Or maybe the second uh, practical reason was the times were tough. I mean, they were experiencing difficult economic times. Perhaps they lacked the, the resources to accomplish such an expensive task. It was probably pretty pricey to do that. And as we read in that text, Times were tough. And so I think, I know I relate to those, those reasons. There's also a possible theological reason. There's several, but one of them that stood out to me was if you think about it, the experiences of getting removed from Jerusalem, being put into exile, the temple being destroyed, all of that was understood to be due to God's, his, essentially his displeasure with their ancestors. You know, they, they have put other things before God, and God eventually, he exiles them. I thought this was interesting. One commentary said, the claim that the time has not yet come may be based on uncertainty about whether the Lord's anger had relented to the point that restoration of the temple could be safely initiated. So in other words, God could still be mad at us for what happened 70 years ago. So until it's clear that he's not, let's just not go there. And that resonated with me because I feel like I've made similar excuses like that. 
I've often thought, man, like, well, maybe like there's been several times to where people have asked for prayer. I'm like, well, and I'm in, inwardly, I'm conflicted. Like, ah, I can't pray for them right now because I think God's mad at me for what I thought or said or I did just a little bit ago. There's this hesitancy to engage with with God when we are aware of uh, possible, like that he might be mad at us. You know, how many of us, you know, avoid uh, approaching God because we think he's mad at us. We, we avoid approaching God in prayer or worship. So those are just possible reasons, practical, theological reason. But at the end of the day, we don't really know what it was that caused them to be so hesitant to, do, to follow through with it. But what we do know is that whatever excuses that they gave, Haggai and God, they're not impressed. They're not impressed with the excuses. And we also learned an inter- another interesting piece of the story. While the people, they were not only hitting the snooze button on the temple project, but it turns out they were heavily invested in their own houses. Verse 3, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Ah, oh, those paneled houses, I tell you. <laughs> you know, so while the house of God sat in ruins, all the people, they're going all HGTV on their own homes. How is it, so in other words, how is it that it's the right time that for you to live in your fine new homes while the, the home, God's temple, is in ruins? By the way, this phrase, paneled houses, it represents the finishing touches of a home. One commentary put it this way, it says, their homes were not in process, but were fully functional while the temple remained a ruin. Also, the term does not, the term paneled houses does not imply luxury or great expense, though paneling can be of that nature. So I think it's important to note here, though, that this is not saying that it's nice or it's bad to have nice stuff. This isn't a, a poverty theology where it's somehow more spiritual to have less. Oh, look at those people with their panel houses. Oh. So it's not bad to have panels on your house. Some of you have really nice panels. The fundamental problem to which Haggai points is that the people were concerned about the wrong house. They were looking after their own homes while neglecting the temple. So that, that is the surface problem that we see. But here's the thing, every surface problem is ultimately connected to and a manifestation of the actual problem that lies below the surface. So what was the actual problem? Well, you see, we were created to glorify God and trust in his provision for us. And we so easily lose sight of that. It's so easy to get distracted one of the predominant themes in Scripture that we see is humanity trying to solve their own problems, trying to subvert God's place in their life. Martin Luther said this. He said, The sin underneath all sins is the lie that we cannot trust the love and grace of Jesus and that we must take matters into our own hands. You see, the surface problem, it's not time. It's not time. And all the possible reasons that the people gave was the result of the actual problem, which was the heart. 
I don't remember who said it first, but it's been said that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. When we believe the lie that God cannot be trusted, our hearts will inevitably turn to something else that we believe will deliver to us the safety, security, and significance that we crave. This is the biblical definition of idolatry. See, idols aren't just the little statues that we think of that maybe that other religions worship or the indigenous tribe has. No, idols are way, way more prevalent and pervasive in our lives than we think they are. One author defines an idol this way. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to, you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. So in the story, we see that people's houses, their well-being, their safety, their security, their comfort, all of those things became more important than God's glory. And I spent some time this week and just creating a list of what are the things in my own life that reveal my idolatry? that reveal my self-absorbed disposition. So let me read you this list, and maybe they resonates with you as well. Things that reveal my own idolatry. Well, the plans that I want to make for my own life. My self-focused dreams of success. My demands for comfort, ease. My demands for pleasure, acclaim, prominence, and respect my desire to be in control. How about this one? The plans I make for others. (laughs) Having control over other people. My craving for a certain lifestyle or a particular location. Panels. My control over my own time. Or the constant maintenance of my reputation or my personal brand where I'm just managing the way that I want to be perceived by other people. My needing to have the final word and to get my own way. Or my unfaltering confidence in me. All of those things, just it, it reveals so much idolatry in my own life. And here's the thing, that as long as it's about me, as long as it's about you, when it's all about us, we, like, A, God, God isn't glorified, and we aren't satisfied. Because here's the thing with idols. They will always, always, always let you down. Look at verses 6 and then 9 through 11. God is, he's saying, what reward are your pursuits even giving you? He says, you have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. Don't get any ideas with that one, by the way. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. He who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate while each of you runs to his own house. See, all of those pursuits, all of the things that they were going after, it wasn't paying off. They were still empty. They're still frustrated. And so check this out. This is huge. 
Verse 10, therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, all the labor of your hands. It's so interesting that God is admitting that he's the cause of this. He's the one causing it to happen. And some of you may not like that. I know for me, I don't, I don't necessarily like that. It makes sound, God sound like a bully. Like, why is he so withholding? Is he a bully? The truth is no. The truth is that God lovingly intervenes and strips our idols away, not out of spite, but out of love. Because listen, no created thing can ever be for us what the creator alone can be. It's unloving for him to, to give us, to allow us to go and try to find pleasure and comfort in something that at the end of the day is not going to produce it. That's not the loving thing to do. The loving thing to do is to strip those idols from us and bring us back to himself. So, friends, the, the, the frustration we feel when we don't get the respect or reward we think we deserve, the disappointment we experience when something or someone fails to meet our expectations— all of these frustrations, all of these disappointments, they're painful reminders that we've made an idol. We've pushed God out of the center. And as our self-centered pursuits, pursuits fail, God uses, I love this, God uses our disillusionment. He uses our disappointments to graciously remind us that he is the only one who can satisfy the longings of our heart. So we've looked at the surface problem, which is connected ultimately to that deeper problem, the heart. But now I want to talk about what's the solution? Let's look. What was God's instruction to his people? In verse 7 and 8, he says, the Lord of, uh, says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountains Bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. His instruction to them was simple. It was get to work. And they did. We read that they were obedient, which is, that's awesome. They went up the mountain and they came down with the wood to build the temple. They obeyed the Lord. They showed reverence for him. And I love what verse 13 says. What God says as a response, he says, well, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, verse 13, I am with you, declares the Lord. Wow, I mean, that must have been a huge sense of relief to hear that. God is with us. They did what he said, and God said he was with them. Now, I feel like it would make sense just to end the sermon right there. Simple. Do what God says, and he'll be with you. Simple enough, right? Do what God says, and he'll be with you. I, to me, though, that, that's great, but that doesn't sound like good news to me. That doesn't feel like good news to me. You know, it, it, while it's a motivating pep talk, for sure, that can't change my heart. That can't change your heart. 
what changes our heart isn't seeing first and foremost what we ought to do for God. No, what changes our heart, what melts and moves our hearts to, to is seeing what God has graciously done for us. It's not, I'm just going to say that again, what changes our heart isn't seeing first and foremost what we ought to be doing for God. What melts and moves our hearts is seeing what God has graciously done for us. Approximately 500 or so years after Haggai brought this message, 500 or so years after he motivated the people to rebuild the temple, the temple which was the, the symbol of God's presence with them, a man named Jesus arrived on the scene. And that Jesus, he claimed to be God. People even called him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus had a zeal. He had a passion for his father's house. The apostle John even tells us that Jesus, he claimed to be the true temple. He claimed to be the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament temple represented. At the end of Jesus' ministry, he didn't climb the mountain to bring wood down to build a temple. He carried wood up the mountain to die in our place. And because of what he did on the cross, you and I can have full confidence that we are fully loved, fully approved, fully accepted, and the more that we live in that truth, the more we realize that we no longer need to slavishly try to build our own kingdom, but we can freely and generously join God in building his. I love what, what Paul says in Romans 8, 31 through 32. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? God gave us Jesus. And he gave us Jesus not when we were at our best. He gave us Jesus when we were at our worst. When we were failing to do what he's called us to do. We we're failing to be the people that we're supposed to be. He didn't give Jesus to us when we were at our best he gives Jesus to us when we were at our worst. And because he did, everything that we need, everything that we long for is, our, is already ours in Christ. We no longer need to spend our lives trying to prove our worth. We don't need to spend our lives trying to secure our future. And this is the gospel. And the gospel frees us to live for God's purposes instead of our own. And in the same way that that God showed up and spoke through Haggai to tell the people to get to work. Get to work. Jesus shows up and says, it is finished. In the same way that God spoke through Haggai and said, on behalf of God, I am with you. God said in even a bolder way through Jesus, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. I want to invite the band to come back up right now. We're going to close uh, with one last song. And I think it would just be appropriate as we sing this song, uh, just as a, an opportunity to respond, an opportunity to confess, 
an opportunity to repent, to think through what, what are the things that I'm trusting in? What are the things that I'm banking on? What is it that I'm looking to to give my life meaning, to give my life worth? What are those things? Think about it. Where, where are you anxious? Where are you frustrated, disappointed? So let's just use this time to be honest with ourselves, to be honest with God and express our need for him, our need for Jesus. And this is not once upon a time, Jesus, I needed you. I'm good. I'm, I'm good on my own now. Thank you. But this is a, a need, not even I need you once a year. This is I need you every hour. Every hour I need you. So use this song as a, a tangible prayer to express to God, to Jesus, your need for him.